Uh, we'll hear argument now in number 92-15-10, Michael Cavanaugh versus Gary Lee uh, Roller. And Mr. Lundberg, Mr. Ferry, the court would like to hear a discussion of what mootness problems may be raised by the statutory amendment that you've called to our attention. When was the South Carolina statute passed, the statute that raises this issue? The statute was passed in June of this year, but we didn't know about it. Uh, in, in the, my colleagues and I, nor the corrections community, nobody was aware of it until Friday of uh, this past week. Well, you come in here with a four-and-a-half-year-old, four-and-a-month, four-and-a-half-month-old statute and present it to us the eve of argument. You surely don't practice law that way in South Carolina, do you? Uh, no, Your Honor, but the, in South Carolina this past legislative season, we had a, a massive restructuring of state government, and we had a, a, a large number of laws. And the, I have a copy on my desk that was a, the earliest draft I could get of this classification bill. And on the draft that I have, it doesn't have this provision in it. We've checked up on that on Friday to find out how it got added, and it was added in the conference committee. But copies of the bill were not available for us to see until the, uh, the advance sheets came out. So I had no knowledge of it, although I had looked at the, at the draft that I had of the classification bill, and Mr. Ferry wasn't aware of it, nor was uh, my co-counsel. Uh, one of our colleagues at the Attorney General's office had gotten a copy of the advance sheets, had taken it home and was reading it, and uh, noticed that provision in the application to this case and called. Other states, I think, uh, have daily legislative service that enable lawyers to keep up with what's going on in the legislature. It is a little awkward to have as old a statute as this come in here the day before we argue. Yes, Your Honor, it's very awkward for me, too. I made every effort to find to keep abreast of this statute that was available to me at the time, including uh, computerized access uh, at the legislation, but it, did, it wasn't physically available for me to read. Uh, it was a very unusual legislative year, and I can't offer any other explanation of that other than that we were diligent to keep up with this law. Now that you're, now that you're here, is the 1983 aspect of the suit at least still live? Well, Your Honor, uh, it's our position that the, uh, until January 1st of 1994, all the issues are alive in this case. Uh, as of January 1st of 1994, when the, uh, this new legislation goes into effect, it will then... Uh, retroactively on the one section make uh, this case moot as to the rescheduling of parole consideration hearings. But it's live on the issue of whether or not the ex post facto clause. Today it's live on the issue of whether or not the ex post facto clause applies to parole procedures and the interval between parole consideration hearings in the first place. I wonder uh, how much of a, of a practical help uh, that is Ordinarily, a case that is argued in the November arguments probably would not be decided until after January 1st here. So that we're talking not just about today, but we have to talk, too, about the possibility of our court not having finished its work on the case until after the 1st of January. Uh, yes, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, this case uh, is not one which I can say could not necessarily be repeated uh, because it involves the procedure involved in parole, paroling procedures in general. And so I assume that, that someplace along the line that a paroling procedure case could again come up in front of this court, but a case such as this particular one uh, might not be able to be raised, uh, and therefore maybe the mootness could be um, 
wouldn't be an objection to this Court making a decision on it. And that, that's our test, isn't it? It has to involve these particular parties, uh, the possibility of repetition, not yes. just repetition of the issue against the South Carolina authority. That's true, Mr. Chief Justice. And in addition, since there has been no publicity, no one in the, in the corrections field, no one in the probation field, no one in the general public, uh, as strange as it may seem, has had an opportunity to be aware of this particular piece of legislation, and now that the advance sheets are out, it may be that the General Assembly uh, will find uh, some uh, concern about the, the effect of this legislation, and it may be that they will be altering their, their, the legislation in the near future. May I ask, just to have a better understanding of it, you mentioned the conference committee apparently amended the legislation at the last minute. It was the amendment to which you refer that uh, subsection B, subparagraph B of section 8, the one that says that the uh, refers to the time of commission of the crime? Uh, no, Your Honor. The, the amendment that I refer to was in the uh, uh, section that made it active, that section 266 that says that the retroactive effect of 16160B, uh, that that section will be retroactive. Uh, the, the law that came in had the, six, had the amendment that brought in 16160B that changed the definition of a violent crime, the offender to, to whom would be considered a violent offender. But then uh, the, the part that was stuck in was stuck in, in 266 to make that one specific section retroactive, where the rest of the statute was uh, prospective. And that was the part that we, I was unaware of, was the is retroactive. It, is it possible, in your view, that the, the purpose of doing that was to take care of this very lit, uh, litigation because we, we had granted cert in the case, and, uh, or at least the Fourth Circuit had decided, decided the issue? Uh, I, you just don't. I just I don't I can't answer what's in the mind of the legislature, but I I, I, I doubt very seriously that it was uh, in their mind or that they were even aware of it. I, I take it that in fact he has not had a hearing this year. That's correct, Your Honor. Uh, he has not had a hearing this year. Okay. Uh, so the, the questions that have been presented here in this case for review are whether or not the change in the interval between parole consideration hearings from one year to two years, uh, which came after the respondent's crime, violates the ex post facto clause, and whether or not the respondent's claim is, cog is cognizable under uh, Section 1983 instead of under habeas corpus. The change in an interval between a parole consideration hearing from one year to two years uh, does not uh, violate the ex post facto clause. The, the change involves a part of procedure that's involved in the uh, parole decision-making process. In other words, in South Carolina, this is a, a change which is involved in a, in a form of clemency in the state of South Carolina. Would there be any limit of time to the correctness of your statement if they decided, for example, there would be a hearing only every 20 years? Would that make any difference? Uh, under the... Uh, the Proposition that I'm saying, and I think that it would not make any difference, because if the ex post facto clause does not apply, then it would not make any difference in terms of an ex post facto analysis of whether or not the, there was a hearing in one year or 20 years. The Fourth Circuit's uh, reasoning making the, the change in the interval between parole consideration hearings a violation of the ex post facto clause presents a large number of other problems for a state such as South Carolina. For example, would an increase in the, in the board size constitute a violation of the ex post facto clause? Or would a change from a majority vote to a two-thirds majority vote violate the ex post facto clause? Or what about a smaller change, like from 21 months to two years violate the ex post facto clause? It's my position 
that none of these changes, including a change from one year to two years in the frequency of parole consideration hearings, violates the ex post facto clause. Mr. Lundberg, suppose the statute, uh, suppose you had a statute that said uh, anyone uh, convicted of a, of a crime will be eligible for parole uh, after one year. And then the statute is amended to say uh, that person will be eligible for parole only after 10 years. Would, would that be, a, uh, if, if applied retroactively, would that be a violation of the ex post facto clause? Well, Your Honor, uh, the position that I'm taking is that the ex post facto clause does not apply to the scheduling between parole consideration hearings, and the logical extension of that position is that the ex post facto clause does not apply to parole eligibility, period. And period. the period. And the, the uh, case that I rely on from this court is Collins versus Youngblood. In Collins versus Youngblood, this court said in, uh, that the, in reaffirming the Bizell case, Bizell versus Ohio, that to the best of this court's understanding, it correctly reflected the original understanding of the ex post facto clause. And that understanding, as we, we all know, you know, involves that you can't make a, a crime that was in, make a law, an act which was innocent, a crime after the fact, or, or increase the punishment, or make more burdensome the punishment, or change the rules of evidence in such a way. Why doesn't this make the punishment more burdensome? One, the, one is eligible for parole after a period of time, and later on he's not eligible. Isn't that a more burdensome punishment? No, the punishment that, the, that is prescribed in the statute is for a fixed number, is for whatever is allowed in the statute. In this particular case, uh, the respondent had a 35-year sentence. That sentence was pronounced by the legislature. What is going on in, in the paroling process is a form of clemency. But this court has said on a couple of occasions that the paroling process does not uh, uh, change the sentence. In Lindsay versus Washington, uh, an argument was made involving a, uh, an indeterminate scheme of sentencing and then a change to a, a fixed sentence. And since the fixed sentence was the same as the maximum in the indeterminate sentence, the, the state took the position that there was no violation. Uh, and the, Would you go for, so far as to say that if a, a, a state had a 30-year sentence for a particular crime for everybody and at the end of a third of the sentence the person was eligible for parole and routinely parole was granted, they then abolish parole entirely so that they, everybody had to start serving their full 30-year sentences. Well, what would you say in that case? Uh, Your Honor, I would say that the sentence, if it were 30 years, remains 30 years, and the fact that the situs of the service of the sentence might change doesn't change the sentence, and the paroling process doesn't change the sentence, and, the, and you've said that uh, in this court on a couple of occasions. You also made that mention in, the, uh, in a parole guidelines case of Portley versus uh, Grossman, where you said that the change in the paroling guidelines, uh, even though it kept the person in jail longer, that it did not uh, implicate the ex post facto clause, and it wasn't a, a violation of the Mr. Constitution. Mr. Lundberg, do I understand correctly that the South Carolina Supreme Court now agrees with the Fourth Circuit, has rejected your argument on the merits? You do understand correctly. And was the legislation, the recent legislative change in South Carolina, responsive to the South Carolina Supreme Court's decision? Uh, no, it was not. The legislation took place in uh, June. The decision uh, of the South Carolina Supreme Court took place in August, and the South Carolina Supreme Court decision was based on no independent state ground. It solely relates to, a, to the base, to the to the fact that the federal circuits had taken this position, and they, so they followed the federal circuit and changed the South Carolina law. As a matter, they, the South Carolina was following what they took to be the meaning of the U.S. Constitution based on what the Fourth Circuit said. That's my interpretation of the case, Your, Your Honor, yes. That's what I think that was done in the Griffin case. But the legislative change, in fact, came first. Is that 
That's correct. But uh, as hard as it may be to believe, no one saw the legislative change except those people who were physically involved in the writing up of it. South Carolina Supreme Court was not aware of the legislative change, as far as you know. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, that's exactly correct. They were not aware. Mr. Lundgren, do you have any comment about Aikens against Snow and the 11th Circuit? Yes, the Aikens case uh, versus uh, Snow, I think has been, uh, there's two problems with that. One of them is a question of whether or not the ex post facto clause applies at all. The second problem is, is that in the Aikens case, the 11th Circuit took the position that the Georgia statute, the way it was written, made the interval between parole considerations a part of parole eligibility, and then took the position that the ex post facto clause applies to parole eligibility, and since the Georgia statute intended to make the interval between parole considerations a part of parole eligibility, that it violated the ex post facto clause, and they struck it down. The problem for all of these cases, the the Snow case, Aikens versus Snow, and and a large number of other cases, is that the circuits are not in agreement. And the districts, there's disagreement between the district courts and the circuit court and the courts of appeal and between the courts of appeal. If this court were to take a a clear statement and say whether or not the ex post facto clause applies at all to these parole eligibility procedures, uh, this problem would would be resolved and we wouldn't have these kinds of cases. And that's the position that that I'm taking here. Another thing that in the Collins case, in the concurring opinion to the Collins case, this court set forth a test that might be looked at to determine whether or not a procedure actually violated or implicated the ex post facto clause. And that, that test is this, that you look at the procedure from the time at when the act was committed, and if that procedure... Uh, uh, impl- changes the obtaining of a valid conviction or a sentence, then the ex post facto clause is implicated, and from there the analysis would go to whether or not there was a substantial uh, disadvantage. Well, when you do that, if you go back to the time when, when the respondent committed his crime, and you look at the procedural change, it does the change in the frequency between parole consideration hearings hasn't got anything to do with the obtaining a valid conviction or the sentence. His sentence will, is not altered by whether or not he's gained parole. He has, in this state, he has absolutely no expectation of parole. That's part of his argument that he says makes him go into 1983, is the fact that he, but he hasn't shown any entitlement to, uh, to a, a fixed hearing date. There's no constitutional protection. This court said in, uh, in the Greenholz case, Greenholz versus the inmates of the uh, Nebraska Penal Commission, uh, this court said, that there was no constitutional right, nor inherent right, to be released conditionally on, uh, prior to the expiration of a sentence. And, uh, and so, and, and, the, and the, the position that this court has taken all the way through, I am unable to find, nor have I seen anything cited in this case, in the jurisprudence of this court, anything that's contrary that would in any way would implicate the ex post facto clause in this analysis. How about Weaver against Graham? Weaver against Graham was a, uh, although they used the term good gain time, it was a good time credit scheme. It involved an automatic re, uh, uh, scheme whereby a person would be, his sentence would be shortened. The legislature replaced that scheme by putting in a discretionary uh, good time credit scheme, and even though the amount of, of good time credit might have been greater under the discretionary scheme, it required affirmative acts on the part of the inmate. And under the prior scheme, it required no acts, and the result was that they would be, their sentence in absolute terms would be shortened. So this court held that the ex post facto clause was involved, but again we're talking about an actual reduction in sentence, whereas with paroling in South Carolina, 
if you're granted parole, it's not a reduction in sentence. Not, it's, a, it's a form of clemency. They still have to be supervised by the state. The, the purpose of paroling has nothing to do with punishment. It's, a, it's an administrative, executive type of a program. So, yeah, are you saying, in effect, that while you're on parole in South Carolina, you're still you're serving your sentence still? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, you continue to serve your sentence, and there's no, and it doesn't accelerate the sentence uh, satisfaction. There's no benefit to being on parole except having a change in the situs. Of the, of the place of service of the sentence, but it is a, it, and it is a form of clemency. Well, as a practical matter, there's certainly benefit because you're, you're able to walk around and so forth rather than be confined. That's, that, I agree with that, Mr. Chief Justice, but every change or every, every procedural change that takes place, assuming that there was a violate, that it, the ex post facto clause was implicated, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it's addressable or actionable. Uh, Dolbert uh, versus Florida is a case that makes that point, and there are others from this court that have made that point. So the, the threshold problem is whether or not the ex post facto clause applies at all. If the ex post facto clause does apply, then you've got to address the question of whether or not this, pro- this respondent can bring the action under uh, 1983 rather than under the ex post facto clause. Priester Stay, versus staying with your ex post facto, with the merits point, uh, do I grasp your position on mootness correctly that if you were here after January 1st, there would be no argument that you could make that this case is not, that the question on the merits is not, is not moot? Yes, Your Honor, that's correct. After January 1st, assuming no legislative change, I have no argument to make. In a practical sense, when, is he, when would he be entitled to his next hearing had the uh, statute been in effect all along? I mean, the, the one-year provision been in effect. Yeah, he became eligible uh, for parole, Your Honor. And I don't know, that's another point. This statute that, were effect, that affected the frequency of hearing uh, went into effect uh, before he became eligible for parole, but after his, his sentence. He was heard originally in 1990, and then the two-year statute was applied to him, and he was heard again in 1992. The Griffin case came down uh, in August, and the department is is in the process of scheduling all the hearings for all people affected by the Griffin case. So under a one-year cycle, he'd be, sometime in 1993, he would be receiving his next hearing. Assuming that that administratively they, they have enough spaces. To, to get him heard. But isn't it, assume we didn't decide the case for six months for some reason we got slow about our work or something. Isn't it true that under the prevailing ruling of the, both the Fourth Circuit and the State Supreme Court, you'd have to give him his hearing in 1993, wouldn't you? Uh, yes. I think we have to give him his hearing. We haven't been told that we have to give it to him in a fixed particular date. We, I think the administrative... It has to be within 1993. It's... To do our best to, get, to comply with the court's order, that's correct, Your Honor. And administratively, we're in the process of trying to accomplish that. But practically speaking, because of the way that the uh, paroling system is administrated, they're scheduled as I speak. They have every, every case set up clear through May of, of uh, 1994, right now. They've book, booked in all their cases through that time. I see. And I take it so far as these practicalities are concerned, the same would be true if we came down with a decision against you tomorrow morning. Yes, Your Honor, that's true. Uh, and wouldn't, you would move it up just for us. Well, I think we would, Your Honor. <laughs> uh, the, uh, 
In, uh, so uh, I mentioned that this... And, and not to the South Carolina Supreme Court. <laughs> well, we've done our best to comply with the order. Uh, but the way, unless we have more uh, resources, we had just physically don't have the time. We were, we're literally, I checked this before I came up here, they have every single space uh, available and they hold it, they'll hear like 60 cases in a day, and they have every single space booked up through May, and they're starting to book into the, in the subsequent months. So it's a di- they would have to put on more, have more hearings than they presently have, which means they'd have to have more money, which means they'd have to go back to the Budget and Control Board and, and follow those matters in, from a practical point of view in order to provide more hearings well, within Mr. the resources. Lundberg, do you have any opinion? as to whether if we were to decide this case is not moot and were to reverse the judgment of the Fourth Circuit and say that is not the law under the federal constitution, would the South Carolina Supreme Court then follow our, our view, do you think? Well, I think so. Also, I think that the South Carolina case was decided exclusively on, on, well, that's uh, what I mean. yeah, on federal grounds, and so I think they would, a decision by this court reversing that would necessarily we would ask them to review it if they didn't automatically on their own review it. Does South Carolina have a, a parallel provision in its state constitution of pro- prohibiting ex post facto laws? It does. In, in the earlier litigation, uh, did uh, the litigants argue both issues and then the South Carolina court just chose to rest it on the federal ground? The applicant raised both constitutions in his original pleading uh, in the roller case, uh, in the Griffin case, I was not. I don't know the answer to that. So um, uh, I can't answer in the Griffin case whether the state constitution was raised or not. The um, in terms, of, uh, if this court though were to go forward uh, with and find the, I don't think you should find that the ex post facto clause applies. But if you did, then I think that the Fourth Circuit's case has to be reversed because the uh, there's no entitlement to a, a hearing and the. The, uh, the scheduling, there's, there's no loss of meaning, a meaningful opportunity to be considered for parole under this particular change. And if, you were, and if that is going to be determined to be a right, going from one year to two years has not deprived uh, Mr. Roller of a meaningful opportunity to be considered for parole within his uh, sentence. And that, that's the reason that we have a, a scheme that provided for two years for violent offenders, because they have longer sentences and it takes having a hearing every year is not necessarily productive and from a state's management point of view of its resources uh, they don't want to do that and in fact before the general assembly changed the procedure persons in roller situation would have had to wait two years so uh, if this court were to feel that this was to be uh, a mood issue we feel that under uh, the united states versus munsingware that the fourth circuit's case ought to be vacated so that uh, it wouldn't leave a bad precedent on a, on a, a mood issue. If extraordinary circumstances come to the attention of the parole board, can they give a hearing uh, uh, under the under the old rules sooner than one year, or sooner than two years? Uh, no, Your Honor. That's it's they're fixed into uh, one year or two year intervals following a rejection. If the person is revoked, the, the, there's no procedure set by the General Assembly, and the parole board sets its own procedure. It's one year following a rejection, two years following a subsequent rejection on the same, on the same sentence. But there's no provision to expedite hearings other than uh, if they would create one. But they don't have anything in their board manual for expediting hearings. I'd like to reserve the rest of my time if there are no further questions. Very well, Mr. Lundberg. We'll hear from you now, Mr. Ferry. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. 
First, as to the mootness issue, I find myself somewhat torn. Uh, we were successful in the Fourth Circuit. This was a pro se complaint by a prisoner who was denied parole initially, then told rather than the one-year period he had to wait for reconsideration, he had to wait two. He then brought a habeas, excuse me, a 1983 action in district court, pro se, lost. Appealed it pro se to the Fourth Circuit. Fourth Circuit called and asked what I consider being appointed and take the case on his behalf. Fourth Circuit found that the change from the one year to the two year violated the Constitution. That conflicted with a South Carolina Supreme Court case called Gunner, in which both the state and the federal ex post facto clauses were considered and found that that one to two year change was not a substantive change, therefore it did not violate the ex post facto clauses. The Fourth Circuit, as I said, reversed, and that is how we are here now. Since that reversal by the Fourth Circuit, certain things have occurred which have been initiated by the state, by both the legislative branch of the state and the judicial branch of the state. Only the executive branch of the state of South Carolina has not accepted the judgment of the roller court of the Fourth Circuit as to ex post facto and the statute. First, the legislature, as we have found out, has amended the statute and, in effect, accorded all individuals sentenced under the old scheme their rights consistent with the ruling in Roller. Secondly, the South Carolina Supreme Court reconsidered their ruling in Gunner in Griffin, and they did not feel compelled to do so. They were aware at that time that Roller was pending before this court. As a matter of fact, the state petitioned for rehearing based upon this case. The court, the South Carolina Supreme Court, specifically held that they were convinced by the ruling in Roller that it was a consistent with their understanding of what ex post facto, at least now, what ex post facto means. That case was brought, brought and the ruling was consistent with both the state and the federal constitution. Matter of fact, they used the little case ex post facto rather than the ex post facto clause usually used when referring to the constitutional provisions. So it's our position that while this case may be moot or close to moot, it is done by the state. And the usual remedy applicable that the state has cited, the Munsonware case and the Los Angeles versus Davis case, is not appropriate for this case. That may be so when we're dealing just with a, an executive decision to turn something on or off. But now that there's a legislative change by the South Carolina legislature, do you have... Um, any precedent that says when the legislature change, that exception to mootness applies, that is, for voluntary cessation? Justice Ginsburg, maybe I'm not being clear. It's not that I don't think the case may be moot. It's the usual remedy of this court I don't think is appropriate under these circumstances. In Munsonware, this court indicated that if one party takes steps to cause the ending of the case, they can't complain when it is used against them in race judicata. Here, the state has accepted the ruling of the Fourth Circuit, both the executive and the legislative. Now they want to make this case moot, yet they want no precedent against them. The usual remedy is to, is to remand to the Fourth Circuit and to order them to dismiss the action as if it never occurred, which obviously would have no precedential effect if the South Carolina legislature were in February to decide to change the law back. Then Mr. Roller, unless the South Carolina Supreme Court were to indicate that it was based upon, their ruling was based upon the state constitution, would be back in the same position again. 
Well, why couldn't, why couldn't the South Carolina Supreme Court say, although the Fourth Circuit's judgment and roller has been vacated because of mootness, we found it persuasive before, and uh, we still find it persuasive. We're going to stick to our opinion in Griffin. They very possibly could, Mr. Chief Justice, but there's no guarantee they would. And I think the precedent of having a party to a lawsuit being able to avoid losing, in effect, by simply mooting the issue, I think it's a dangerous one. But the South Carolina Supreme Court was not bound by what the Fourth Circuit said, so if it followed it, it was only because it was persuaded by the reasoning of the Fourth Circuit, and that same reasoning would stand even if the Fourth Circuit decision is vacated. That is, the South Carolina Supreme Court has already adopted that reasoning. It's part of its own jurisprudence. Yes, Justice Ginsburg, I agree. But if this case is going to be mooted because of the legislation, as opposed to the judgment of the South Carolina Supreme Court, then it is the state adopting the ruling. In other words, Mr. Roller won in the Fourth Circuit. The state has accepted that. Yet they don't want precedent to that effect. Now, understand, my understanding under other precedent of this court is that just the ruling by the South Carolina Supreme Court, when they were not absolutely clear whether it was under the federal or state constitution, does not moot out this case. Only the legislation would do that. The legislation is subject to change, obviously. Mr. Ferry, uh, you don't cite the case of Aikens against Snow. Your opponent uh, cites it uh, both in the, his main brief and in the reply brief. Struggles with it, perhaps successfully, perhaps not. Do you have any comment on it? Aikens versus Snow, I think, is on, along the same principle as the ex post facto in this case. We view ex post facto in, some, we think like Collins does, that ex post facto is either there or it is not. It is not a relative thing. To that extent, I agree with the state. Well, an argument could be made it uh, is precisely the same as this case, except seven years against one. Exactly. And as a matter of fact, the Fourth Circuit said that and quoted, I think, Thoreau, that as if you could kill time. That's rather a slippery slope, isn't it? If you're going to take that analysis, I think it is. Our position is that a one-year change is just as violative of ex post facto as an eight-year change, that any change in the quantum of punishment whether it be small or large, violates the Constitution. The issue, and I, and I think I understand where the state's coming from, they're, they're saying in effect that since you're not guaranteed parole, you have no, let's say, liberty interest. South Carolina statute clearly is not similar to the Greenholz or to the Allen statute where you must be paroled. It says you may be paroled. And there may not be a liberty interest in the release on parole. But the issue is not that. The issue is whether or not there is a right to the consideration of the parole, is how we see it. It's similar to a judge sentencing someone. Well, I recognize the issue, but I'm not sure you've distinguished the case. But go ahead. Well, Justice Blackman, I wouldn't try to distinguish Aikens versus Snow. Aikens versus Snow, we feel like, supports our position. But the sentencing judge has discretion to sentence within guidelines. In South Carolina, in most cases, they have from probation to the maximum sentence. Due process doesn't come in unless they violate, go outside that range. Similarly, a parole board has that similar discretion. They have a minimum range, which is when someone becomes eligible for parole, and then they have a maximum range, the conclusion of the sentence. Mr. Ferry, if you prevail here, I suppose the next case will be 
that some change adverse to the prisoner in a case of administrative segregation within the prison violates the ex post facto clause. Do you think that can be distinguished from parole? Yes, Mr. Chief Justice, I think it can. How? Oh. D- depending upon whether that has an effect upon the length of sentence the individual is subject to incarceration. Well, your opponent says that parole has no effect on the length of, of sentence, that the sentence technically remains the same. Granted, he's free to walk around. I suppose the same argument could be made that someone in administrative segregation, though they're serving the, the sentence the same, is not nearly as free as someone who's outside of administrative segregation. That, has, that issue, I believe, Mr. Chief Justice, has been considered by this court and rejected. In what case? Uh, in a series of cases, I believe, in Olam and uh, I have them here somewhere, but as a series of cases. Where I, I think that was based on, on the entitlement argument. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, not on the ex post facto clause. Yes, Your Honor, but I don't see where someone is serving their sentence as having an effect upon the punishment imposed. I disagree with the state that parole is not a, sub- a substantial difference. I think that ignores reality. So you say the difference between serving your sentence in prison and parole is a substantial difference, whereas the difference between serving part of your sentence in administrative segregation and uh, the general prison population is not a substantial difference. I would much prefer to be in the general population, but I'd much, there is a, yes, there is a quantitative difference in those two things. One, you are, you have freedom. The other, you do not. One is like probation. The other, well, you're still you incarcerated. You report to your parole officer. You probably can't, you know, you can't commit any crime. You can't do lots of things when you're on parole that a free citizen could. I agree. But you have freedom, much greater freedom than you would while incarcerated. And I think this court has recognized that in a number of, in, in a number of instances. I think common sense tells us that. The issue, I think, is whether or not there is a change in the quantum of punishment by changing this parole statute. Mr. Perry, uh, you, you, you agree that there's no entitlement to the parole. I agree. It's purely discretionary. You, you come up uh, um, in two years, and, there, and, and you could not sue if they don't give you the parole, right? I agree there is no right to release on parole. Right. Okay. Now, s- suppose the parole, the parole statute is not changed to say you get a hearing every two years, but what happens is the standards that the parole board has traditionally been applying which are written down, uh, are changed to be much more harsh. So that in point of fact, whereas they would have paroled you on a 30-year sentence previously after eight years, they now announce in the new rules that they will not parole you until 15 years. I think you're getting dangerously close to my, my dividing point. I think in many cases, rather than writing down these changes you're talking about, Justice Scalia, they make that decision on their own and for a well, period of time well, based what's your upon answer if it's written down. It, it, it used to be if X, Y, and Z exist, you're out in eight years. Under the new ones, no one gets out until 15 years for this particular crime. Then I think you do get so, back into your analogy. That's bad. That's bad. No, necessarily. It's not bad. It depends upon... Why the, is that any different from, from what you bring before us? Because what I bring before you is a situation where the state, not the discretionary agency... But the state has imposed regulations upon the discretionary agency. The parole board has always had the option of... Oh, well, oh, oh I see. So all, well, the, all that the state had to do would be to leave it up to the parole board oh, yes. how frequently they, they wanted their hearings. If they, had, if they used to have them every one year by regulation, but they decide that in the future they're going to have them every two years, that's okay. Just clear, if they had no rule and they left it completely to the discretion of the parole board, 
then there would be no right to complain because there would be no expectation. And but there the would parole be no board has adopted a rule, and, and you say changing the parole board's own rule would not count for ex post facto purposes. If that rule has the force of law, it would. Well, of course, but of course it has the force of law. Then I think it would. It binds the parole board. I think it goes... The parole board can change it, but as long as it's in effect, the parole board's bound by it. And, and, and you to say that, that if they change their own rule from one year to two years, that violates the ex post facto clause. In my opinion, yes, okay, if now, that wait, has the now rule answer of my law. question. Now, suppose they have a rule that says we will normally, we will grant parole if X, Y, and Z factors exist after eight years. And they change that rule and say, we're going to be tougher. We will not grant parole for anybody in this situation, even if X, Y, and Z exist until 15 years. They've just changed their, their standard of discretion. Does that violate the ex post facto clause? Depending upon the, and I, I hate to be evasive to your question, I'm not trying to be. It depends upon You're what, succeeding. Uh, I appreciate that. It depends upon what the prisoner and the sentencing court know at the time of the sentencing. Let's, if we need to go back to the purpose of ex post facto, it is, is a fairness doctrine. If the prisoner and the sentencing judge have an expectation of the effect of that sentence. But they do. Look, you, you've conceded that it doesn't matter whether it's the legislature that does it or the parole board that does it, right? You, you, you've conceded that. So long as it's, it's, it's a rule, you've conceded that. Respectively, no, I, I don't think I have. I thought you did. I thought, I thought you initially said that if you changed from one to two years by statute, it was bad, but if the parole board did it, it was good. And then I said, suppose the parole board does it by regulation. And you say, oh, well, if the regulation is binding, then it would be bad. Right? Yes, sir. If the regulation has the force so of law. So it doesn't matter whether the state does it by legislation or by agency rule. So long as it has the force. So long as it force, force, of, force law. of law. Yeah. Yes. Right. Okay. Now suppose the parole board discretionary guidelines have the force of law. They're bound by it. And they change those guidelines so, so as to make their discretion uh, harsher. Discretionary guidelines, you, those, that's a dichotomy. I mean, discretion and guidelines are regulations, then. They, they say, we will grant parole, and they're bound by them. We then, you're, then you're getting into a parole board versus Allen situation, mm -hmm. and a greenhold situation, if you have mandatory language in your guidelines. What I'm saying is that our statute, any statute that sets up a minimal level for parole eligibility and consideration for release is considered by the sentencing judge and the prisoner in being sentenced. Changing that formula post-sentencing violates ex post facto because there's an expectation on both of those people's part, the judge, the sentencing judge, and the prisoner, as to what that sentence will be. There's an expectation as to when they will be eligible for release, which is what parole is. That is what has changed when you change legislatively or by rule. If it has a effect of Suppose that there's a, a written rule that you get uh, your parole hearing once every year, uh, but that also in the rule uh, it's stated that the uh, parole board may, because of its own workload and, and personnel problems, uh, in its discretion changes to two years, and then it changes to two years. Is there ex post facto violation? Not if that was in the statute at the time of the sentencing, or excuse me, at the time of the commission of the crime. It, it, it all, in my view, it all goes back to fairness. If someone is on notice of what the effect of their criminal conduct is and effect of what their sentence and punishment is, it's more than just, punishment is not just a sentence. Punishment is how that sentence is affected upon this individual. If a sentence, like in this case, is over 35 years, 
The earliest release is a little less than 10. The only method of that release is parole. When you start tinkering with that, then you're affecting reality of when people get out of prison. And, you, I mean, we could come up with all kinds of different dichotomies of what could happen and what could, could be changed, but I think it all goes back to the expectation of both the prisoner and the sentencing judge, which is the purpose of ex post facto, and it goes back to the original call to categories that this enhances punishment. And it is done by the state. It is a penal statute. It is retrospective. Therefore, it violates ex post facto. But it enhances punishment. Then why don't you lose on your threshold argument? That is, that, you, that this is the, the improper form in which to cast this action, that it has to be habeas because you're... You're talking about increased punishment, not a mere procedural matter. And therefore, you should bring it under habeas. Because, Justice Ginsburg, while we wish release, we cannot insist upon it. We cannot seek it. We can simply seek the avenue of obtaining release. Uh, under Preser and its, in its succeeding cases, Wolf and Allen and a whole series of cases, Greenholz is among them, particularly, I think, Gerstein versus Pugh, this court has entertained 1983 actions, particularly in this area, by prisoners that are not seeking release, but are seeking what the, the, I think the Third Circuit called it, the process, as opposed to the outcome. Here, we're seeking the process. We seek the hearing, which obviously we cannot obtain release without. But we seek simply the hearing. As the Fourth Circuit said, the parole board need never release Mr. Rover. It simply need consider the issue every year. So under Preser and under its succeeding cases, if you're not seeking the actual release or reduction in time, which we cannot... The opportunity to be released. Yes, ma'am. The opportunity to have the hearing, which is the only manner in which we could obtain release. But, but you have no expectation, no legal expectation, with regard to the outcome of that hearing. Yes, we have none. I agree. We, we, because it is a discretionary determination. Just as I take a client in front of a sentencing judge... He has no expectation of a particular sentence other than in the guidelines. In other words, from probation to 10 years. But he has that expectation. If prior to me taking him in front of the judge, that law was to change and say, okay, now it's no longer 0 to 10, now it's 9 to 10. Yeah, but the, guide, the guidelines are mandatory and appealable. That, that's not at all like parole. I'm sorry. You, you have no cause of action if parole is denied, even though you are the most desirable, eligible candidate, for eligible candidate for parole in the world. Justice. Right? You, can, can you bring it to court and say, no. you know, if anybody deserved parole, I did. You come to court and the court says, get out of here. So what is your expectation? Zero. I misspoke. So how, I, how have your expectations been changed by changing, by changing your hearing from one year to two years? You had no expectation to start off with. Now you have that expectation less, that non-expectation less frequently. I don't see how that puts you in a worse position. You have an expectation of consideration. Now, when I say guidelines, I do not mean parole guidelines under the federal system. I mean the sentencing, the ranges of the sentence. Most states, our state among them, do not use parole guidelines. We are simply talking here about a traditional common law parole situation that, that I grew up practicing law under. And every criminal defendant, first question is, when am I getting out? And I know when we talk as though there, there is some legal expectation there, but there is none, or else you'd be able to bring a lawsuit to get out if you were a good parole candidate, and you can't. That means to me that this is a matter of clemency, that it's always been treated as clemency, and if that's the case, then I don't see how, how you have any, any complaint under the ex post facto laws. 
if you have no complaint under the ex post facto law, then you have no complaint with the state doing away with parole after someone is sentenced. To me, which to me seems, if it's not in violation of ex post facto, I don't know what the framers meant when they passed ex post facto. And I think it would contravene the, the, all of the cases that this court has considered under ex post facto consideration. I mean, the, the realistic view of or expectation of the prisoner. Now, when you, you have to speak of legal expectation. I mean, yes, he might get a break, and he hoped he'd get a break. That's just like saying, I expected to have a lenient judge when, when, when I was put on trial. And they switched the judge on me just, just before the case began. And, and, and I, have, I, I have, you know, maximum John for my sentencing judge. Well, in, in a way, you can say your expectation was, was upset, but it's not a legal expectation. And, and the law's answer to that is, well, you know, that's, that's too bad. You, you, you did the crime, you got 30 years. You did the crime, you got 30 years with a right under our law to parole consideration at the end of 10. Because it says, our law says, you shall be reviewed for parole. Not that you may. You may be released. You shall be reviewed. Which, in my understanding of the Hewitt versus Helms line of cases, creates a liberty interest in the hearing, at least. I don't see how a right that does not exist can be turned into a right by saying that, that you'll get a hearing on it every two years. I don't agree that it's not a right that doesn't exist. I think there are different types of rights under our Constitution. Ex post facto is not due process. Ex post facto is a right in and of itself. It is not in the Bill of Rights. It is in the Constitution in its body. It has an ancient historical point. The parole system is ancient, as is ex post facto. It, is, it is, has its origins in our common laws of our states, as in South Carolina. It has traditionally been a manner in which people have obtained their release from custody. I don't think we can put that aside and say that because it doesn't fall neatly into some, some due process category, that it is not a right and expectation that prisoners have. It, and I, again, I go back to, it is similar, in my view, to the discretion a judge has in sentencing. And you can't, under Lindsay, you can't change that after the fact. The people, you say, could not put in a new legislature, the people cannot get fed up with, with parole and put in a new legislature that abolishes parole and say, no more parole, just fix sentences. They Certainly can't do that. They can't apply the that to people. people sentenced from that point forward. Uh, but not for people in jail already, right? No, because they were sentenced under a system that could that as a release mechanism. Although the people can get fed up with a governor who, who, uh, who uh, I suppose, uh, who commutes all death sentences. And vote him and, out. And vote him out and put in a new governor. Yes, but they can't do the same thing, and, and, and that wouldn't violate the ex post facto clause. Well, even though you committed your murder before the new, new governor got in. So the trick is whether it's a new governor or a new legislature? In my view, the trick is to be consistent with the Constitution. The Constitution forbids one and not the other. The Constitution encourages getting rid of the governor. The Constitution forbids changing the sentence after it is imposed. That is my view of how... But the, you see, the governor is saying, I know that I don't have to commute death sentences. It's discretionary. But I am choosing to do it. I am elected by the people, and I am choosing to do it. When you put in a new governor who then changes the policy, that doesn't violate the expo facto. No, it does not, because... But you have a legislature who says, we have this parole. We don't have to give it to you, but, but we'll give it to you, and, it, and it's discretionary. You have no right to sue for it. You get in a new legislature who says... We're not going to do that. And why is that any different from, from, from clemency by the governor and clemency by the legislature? Because one is the failure to exercise discretion. The other is removal of the discretion entirely. And there's a difference in those two things. 
that, that a governor has that discretion and doesn't exercise it is not the same. It's just like a parole board having the discretion to release and deciding not to. But when you take away the right to consider the release, it is a different animal. Because then you end discretion. There is no argument that the parole board need never parole any individual person. But when the state takes away its opportunity to do that, then it violates ex post facto. Parole is simply a part of punishment. It has been, it, it may change at some point, but it will have to change prospectively rather than retroactively, is our view. May I just be sure of one thing? You probably said at the beginning, but I don't want to be sure. Do you agree that this case will be voted on January 1st if it isn't decided by then? Justice Stevens, I do. Yeah, I thought you did. But I wish for this court to fashion a different remedy than the normal remedy. And your, your best authority for saying that the Munsingware vacation should not follow in this case is what? Is Munsingware. Munsingware itself. It's, it says, I believe, for the rule, for the, they, they, they talk about why they have the rule, but it is said that those who have prevented from obtaining the review to which they are entitled should not be treated as if there has been a review. In other words, if you're not involved in ending the matter and it becomes moot, then you, you've been denied the right to litigate it and have it finally determined. Here the state caused it to end. They should not be relieved of the race judicata principles and the finality of this judgment. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ferry. Uh, Mr. Lundberg, you have five minutes remaining. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to make uh, two points. Uh, it was said that parole is not a change in the sentence uh, and that uh, parole is, a, is not a punishment. I think he said that parole did it result in a change of sentence by being released and that it was not, and that it was, uh, in effect, changed the punishment. In South Carolina, the, the, there is no right to be released on parole. It derives originally from the Constitution, which gave the power to the governor to uh, grant clemency and to commute sentences. And that ultimately uh, resolved into the, a change in the Constitution, which then gave the power as a form of clemency to the, uh, to the parole board. These changes, and it, but it was always an absolutely discretionary decision and is still an absolutely discretionary decision. These changes, which we're talking about, that have come in by the, the General Assembly, uh, do not in any way change the discretionary powers involved in making this type of a decision. It they changes all, one thing, though. It requires them to hold uh, hearings at certain intervals that they wouldn't otherwise have had to hold them at. Yes, that's insofar as that they... There is a right to a hearing on whether you get out on parole or not. To be considered. That's absolutely correct. But it didn't change the, the in any way the... the how the decision has to be approached like or the you other you have a right wrong. to file a lawsuit, you don't necessarily going to win, but you have a right, right. to file it. Uh, in, in terms of right, the way that, and that's how this case got brought before you, that's correct. And that's the, uh, the point that I would like to make. To your, your position on the Munsingware vacation is that it ought to be vacated even though the state was the party that changed it? Our, my yes, our position on that is that the Munsingware requires there to be a vacation if the, uh, if the case becomes moot before this decision is rendered, and, and that there's no other reason why the case would otherwise avoid mootness and, and get a decision. The fact that the state was involved in this particular issue doesn't resolve the, pro the fact that, that the decision in Roller stands. It has great impact on all the, uh, procedural uh, changes to the paroling process. So if this court doesn't vacate 
the uh, vacate the roller decision in the Fourth Circuit, it'll have a bad precedent in terms of all procedural rolling issues. Why doesn't the state Supreme Court's decision continue that effect? I don't understand. Well, the state Supreme Court decision was predicated exclusively on a, a federal basis, and it's our position that if this court resolves that issue, that are, you, are you saying that South Carolina Supreme Court goes in lockstep with the Fourth Circuit on questions of federal constitutional law? Uh, I don't know how they do in all cases. In this case, that was the only thing that they cited to justify their retrenchment from the Gunter decision, where at that time they said that it was a procedural matter and that it was outside the purview of the ex post facto clause. Along comes the Roller case and says, oh, no, it's inside the the, uh, ex post facto clause. And the South Carolina Supreme Court, apparently, from the way that the position, the the case was argued, I mean, written in the opinion, say we have to follow the Fourth Circuit's position. And they do. But I don't think that there's any uh, independent state ground set forth in the uh, Griffin case to show why they otherwise did. They, all they've done is they've referred consistently to the roller position. Well, they, not, it's not a matter of being an independent state ground, but it's, it's a matter of being independent reasoning by the judges of the, of the state court. And they came to that conclusion uh, as to what the federal law means, which they're entitled to. Which they're entitled to, but it's your prerogative to tell, to actually decide uh, what the federal law does mean and whether or not that decision was correct. But if we simply decide the case is moot and uh, dis- are trying to decide on one procedural disposition of the case or another, certainly we will not have decided the merits in such a way as to overturn the decision of the Fourth Circuit on the merits. No, but if it's vacated, then the decision of the, uh, of the South Carolina Supreme Court will no longer have any, uh, any position in, in from the Fourth Circuit to rely upon, and if they're going to continue along that same type of an analysis, they'll have to independently reach it. There's no other questions out. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Lundberg. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock. <laughs>